That's just excitement. So. Excitement to be here with God's people. Well, it uh, has been a very busy week for Four Corners Church, for our congregation. Uh, as most of you know, we have just finished uh, Vacation Bible School, three hours a day, Monday through Friday. So that's 15 hours. And for those who were serving, getting here before that time to prepare and then staying afterwards, uh, half days at least, uh, Monday through Friday. What a blessing. What a blessing it has been to see so many in our congregation this week tirelessly and faithfully serving the Lord Christ, serving Christ and serving our children, teaching them God's truth, teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest message that the world has ever known, the, the most important news that they could ever hear. And all the way down to age two, you know, it was striking to me this week that uh, they, they even organized something for the twos and the threes and for three hours, you know, three hours with two-year-olds. Uh, and uh, and, and it, it worked out. Everyone survived. <clears throat> but just the blessing of that, uh, I just want to say for my wife and I, we are just so thankful to be a part of this congregation and uh, so thankful for so many of you for pouring into our children, our three kids. And I know that uh, many of you feel the same way as you looked around this week and saw God's people serving. So thank you uh, for serving our Lord, for serving us, for serving one another, for serving our precious children. And I think at the end of the service this morning, there will be a video a little compilation video of uh, VBS scenes, I think is the one, uh, and that will be before the benediction. So uh, uh, I hope you'll look forward to seeing that. Our passage for today is Exodus chapter 5, verses 15, up through chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, was, as I say often, sometimes it's difficult to uh, determine the, the scope of the passage, and uh, it seems that uh, in chapter uh, 6, verse 2, we turn to a unit of, uh, of speech that follows what we have in verse 1. So although it's the Lord speaking in chapter 6, verse 1, and in verse 2, it does seem to break off at that point and move uh, in a new direction or at least uh, form a new unit. So we'll go up from chapter 5, verse 15, up through the first verse of chapter 6. So if you'll go ahead and go there at this time. Moses has returned to Egypt. He and his brother Aaron have confronted Pharaoh. They have delivered God's message. They have gotten up to Pharaoh in his face, and they have said, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thus says the Lord. They have delivered to Pharaoh the message of the sovereign ruler of the universe, the God who in his providence and sovereignty put this Pharaoh on the throne, who oversaw the formation of Egypt, going back to Ham, the descendant of Egypt, the God who is in control of all humanity, has spoken. And he has spoken through his servants, Moses and Aaron, to this ruler, Pharaoh. Through their agency, God has commanded Pharaoh to let the people go, <clears throat> to let the people go so that they might worship him in the wilderness. So what is Pharaoh's response absolute refusal. He doesn't recognize Yahweh. He says, who is Yahweh? And this is not a question. This is not a research question. Uh, this is a dismissive question. This is not, who is Yahweh? Please tell me. This is, who is Yahweh? This is him trampling on Yahweh, trampling on the Lord, saying, who is this God, so-called, that you bring to me, that you come to me in the name of, and you make demands of me on his behalf. No, he doesn't recognize Yahweh, and he will not listen to his message and let the Israelites go. And I mentioned at the end of the sermon last week that though Pharaoh here says, I do not know Yahweh, what we will find in the book of Exodus is that God, the Lord, Yahweh, will make himself known to Pharaoh in judgment. He will make known to Pharaoh his great glory, his great power, he will make it clear to Pharaoh that he alone is the living God. Not the gods made of stone and wood and 
other sorts of things. The God, gods imagined in the hearts and minds of wicked men. The gods masqueraded out as uh, demons or demons moving out into the world, acting as, as gods and being worshipped as we get in the New Testament. No, none of these things. He is the one creator. He is the living God. So he will demonstrate to Pharaoh who he is, that he is the I am. Instead of listening to Moses and Aaron's message, he says to them that they are idle. They are chasing fancies. So as we saw last week, what Pharaoh does is he cracks down on the people. Not only does he say, no, I'm not going to let the people go, but he cracks down on them still further. They must continue to make the same number of bricks, but now they will not be given any straw. We talked last week about how the straw is used in the mud bricks to make them more pliable and to make them stronger as they dry in the sun. Now, these Israelites will have to go and find their own, but even more, they will have to go and find stubble, the little low-lying bits coming up out of the ground. They'll have to get on their hands and knees and dig and cut and get these little pieces of stubble instead of being provided these piles of straw. This is quite the predicament. We ended last week with this verse, chapter 5, verse 14, and the foreman of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? So they're given an impossible task. The people are given an impossible task. Make the same number of bricks each day, but you're no longer given the material that you need to do it. So you've got to go out and find it. And moreover, you've got to get on your hands and knees and kind of dig it up, these little bits. Get as much of that as you can and make the same number of bricks. If it doesn't happen, the foremen are beaten and made by the slave drivers to put more pressure on the people so that they perform as required. Today, beginning in verse 15, we get three complaints that come out of this harsh result. This harsh result of Moses and Aaron's encounter with the Pharaoh. This is, uh, as we saw last week, this is the beginning. It's the first time that Moses and Aaron have gone and had a meeting with Pharaoh. And the result is what we just discussed. And what we find today is that there are three complaints that come out of this harsh result. That's the title for the sermon this morning, Three Complaints. And in all of this, we see unmet expectations. That's really going to be one of the overarching themes of this morning. Unmet expectations of God's people and the pressure that suffering puts on our faith. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But suffering is meant to refine us, and as we'll, as we'll mention, it's meant to refine us and grow us, but it also puts pressure on our faith. That's what we see in our passage for today. And we see the human tendency. When God's plan doesn't go according to our plan, to bring forward this one-word complaint. It is ubiquitous. It is found everywhere, this one-word complaint. Why? 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 That's what we'll see today. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Exodus 5, verse 15, to chapter 6, verse 1. This is God's word. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw 
that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Verse 1 of chapter 6. But Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and put this time before him, ask for his grace as we preach and hear preaching, that his spirit would illuminate his word for all of us and that his spirit would bring the painful but redemptive work of conviction to our hearts and also the encouragement that we need, the hope that we need, the comfort and rejoicing of our souls that we need always from the Lord. So let's ask for His grace. Our Heavenly Father, we come before You, O God, this morning as Your people. We come in the name of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. We come in the name of the One who became flesh for us, the Eternal Word, the Son of the Father, the Only Begotten, eternally begotten, who became man, body and soul, to save us. Father, we come in His name, in the name of the crucified Redeemer, in the name of the risen King. We come in the name of the One who has poured out His Spirit into our hearts that we might cry, Abba, Father, that that we might live this life with power and strength. Father, we praise you for your grace in the lives of your people, just as we saw this past week at Vacation Bible School, just the the marks of your grace, the evidence of your grace in the willingness of your people to serve, give up time and expend energy for the sake of your great name and for the sake of others that they would come to know you as the Lord, as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the week that we've had, and we thank you for all those who have served faithfully, God. We give you praise. Lord, we thank you for the time together this morning. We ask that your spirit will illuminate your word. We thank you for these precious verses that we have in front of us today. Father, would we we soak them in? Would we analyze them? Would we sit under them in humble adoration? Would we sit under the authority of your inerrant, infallible, powerful, sustaining, equipping word? God, we ask that you would go with us now as we hear your word preached, God, that we would be responsive to your spirit, that we would listen with our ears and with our hearts, that we would work our way through this sermon to understand the meaning of the text and how it bears on our specific lives. Father, be merciful to us, we pray, and we worship you, our great God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So our passage for today is driven along by these three complaints. And you saw that as we read, three complaints, and that's another reason I folded verse 1 into Moses' complaint is because it, it is God's response to Moses before he goes into the speech that we find beginning in verse 2. So three complaints, and here they are. You can write them down if you're a note taker. By the way, uh, you're not more sanctified if you're a note taker, less sanctified if you're not. I recognize people approach note taking differently. So uh, maybe you are, maybe you are not. But if you are, these would be 
some major things to get on your page. Uh, we try to encourage our kids to take notes and uh, to at least get the title and the sermon points because it helps to just sort of tie it all together, and then the details can get uh, put in between. So three complaints. The first is to the ruthless ruler, and for that we're looking at 15 to 18. And then to the bold brothers, verses 19 to 21. And then finally to the silent sovereign, uh, chapter 522 up through 6.1. So three complaints leveled against three different audiences, if you will. And uh, we have them just one at a time given to us in this passage. So let's look at the first complaint to Pharaoh himself, to the ruthless ruler. Chapter, one, chapter 5, verses 15 to 18. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Desperation. Exasperation. That's what we hear from the foremen as they bring their grievance to Pharaoh. They have presented their complaint to the master, to their overlord, to their ruler. The foremen were the Hebrews that stood in between Pharaoh and the taskmasters on the one hand and the Hebrew slaves on the other. So these foremen are in this awful position of having to be the boss over their own people as they're being driven along by the orders that come from Pharaoh. So they're the guys fussing at, coaxing, urging. I don't know what kind of physical uh, ruthlessness is is, is put out on the Hebrews by their own fellow Hebrew foremen. It seems that the taskmasters are the ones doing that. But at the very least... The foremen are in this awful position of having to put the authority of Pharaoh and the cruel policies of Pharaoh in action with the people, the supervisors responsible for overseeing the work that it gets done. And uh, the word foreman ultimately goes back to uh, the meaning just writers. These are the guys who are recording. They have a scribal function. They're kind of walking around with the clipboard and they're making sure that the number of bricks that they are supposed to make are that they're made. So they're writing out, they're checking, they're counting, and they're telling the people if they are falling short. They even refer to themselves here as Pharaoh's servants. It was common in the ancient Near East for people of all classes to be granted access to the king. This was a a common practice, the accessibility of a monarch, of the ruler, that the people of all classes could come and speak to the ruler. So for us, we're reading this, you know, you think if you wanted to to call up the, even in our democracy, you wanted to call up the president, it's not going to happen. Right? You're not going to be able to just pick up the phone and text the president. You're not going to just kind of be able to roll up at the White House and knock on the door and, and say, I need to speak with the president. And they're just going to say, yeah, sure, come on in. He, he'll, let him finish what he's doing and, and you can talk with him. It doesn't even happen here in, in a democracy. And we would not think of that happening in many of the, the history, parts of history that we have read. But this was actually quite common in the ancient Near East that people could come and they could make their case to the ruler himself. We even see this in the case of Solomon as he is dealing with cases that come to him and exercising his wisdom. And so the foremen take advantage of that as a means of bringing their complaint to Pharaoh. And their big question is why? Why? We are told to make bricks But we are not given straw. When we can't do this impossible task, we are beaten. But it's not our fault. The fault lies with the Egyptians for not giving us what we need to make the bricks. This is pretty bold what they say to the Pharaoh. The fault lies with your people. 
And also implied in that is the fault lies with you, Pharaoh. These are desperate, exasperated people. Pharaoh's response is blunt and brutal. Verses 17 to 18, but he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Idleness, laziness, unwillingness to work, wasting time. That is Pharaoh's accusation to these foremen. You're just lazy people. You need to get to work. Stop complaining and start working. If you've got time to discuss this whole worshiping your God business, then you have more time to work. If you were busy, if you were working hard, you wouldn't be trying to gather together together to worship some God in the wilderness. That is Pharaoh's attitude. So Pharaoh will have none of it. He is utterly unmoved by this complaint. He essentially says, get out of here. Get back to your work. Answer no. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Do you remember those words? They came at the end of Romans 1. And it was Paul's description of the hearts of the pagan peoples of the world. It's Paul's description. It's Paul's verdict through the Holy Spirit of the Gentiles throughout history. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And here we get the heartless and the ruthless part on full display. Cruelty. These people are in an awful predicament. And Pharaoh could care less. Now, before we go on to the next section, I want to remind you of what we read about the Israelites In chapter 4, verse 31. Do you remember when we were at the end of chapter 4? Moses has returned from Midian to Egypt. And he addresses the Israelite elders. Remember all the anxiety that he had? All of the fear that he had that when he arrived in Egypt, they weren't going to listen to him. They weren't going to accept his message. They weren't going to believe that the Lord had appeared to him. Well, as we read in Chapter 4, verse 31, that after Moses and Aaron come, they delivered the message and they performed the signs. It says, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And I think by implication there, that, that would involve also the foremen. They are believers. They are worshippers. And yet they are being tested and tried. What will they do with the word of God, the promises of God? What will they do with those promises in the midst of these heightened trials? This just tells us that the Lord tests his people. It's a great truth that we have to get in place as we think about the Christian life. As we read the Bible, really as we read through the Bible, we're forming a doctrine of the Christian life. What does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, A doctrine of assurance, of salvation. How do I know I am a Christian? And then from that, we come to understand what we ought to expect in the Christian life. What it means to grow and how we grow. What our expectations should be as far as what we will face and what God will do. And we're told much about God, his faithfulness in the past and how he will respond when these things happen. One of the things that we are told is that the Lord tests his people. Easier to talk about when you're not being tested, right? It's much easier to praise God. Yes, God tests his people. It's much easier to say that with passion and conviction when you're not being tested in a way that is fiery. But when you're in a fiery test, this is an uncomfortable truth, but it is a glorious truth. 1 Peter 1, verses 5 to 8, there we are told that we are those who are a living 
Uh, We have a living hope and we have an inheritance imperishable in heaven for us. We are those who by God's power, this is what it says, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter goes on to say this. In this you rejoice. So rejoicing in our salvation. Though now for a little while, if necessary, by the way, it's God who determines whether or not it's necessary. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Trials grieve us. They cause sorrow. They cause much pain. And there are various kinds. But then it says this, so that, there's a purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God tests our faith. He tests his people. He brings us through trials. It is the influence and impact, as I even said last week, of the the health and wealth prosperity gospel that moves along in life. And then trials come, and we get spun out of control, and then we're going, God, why? This is, well, what's happening? This is so strange, so, so abnormal. It's because our, our Christianity is not informed by Scripture. It's informed by the false teachings of our culture. And so we get thrown out of sorts When all the blessings that we were so happy with, the temporal blessings, somehow get tweaked or removed or or turned in a different direction. And all of a sudden now it's like, what's happening to me, God? I thought you loved me. God's path brings pressure. But that pressure is to result in praise. It has a glorious outcome. It results in this white hot praise to God. As we go through those trials, as God pours out his grace, as our faith is strengthened through them, and it comes out on the other side intact and assured, it results in praise for God's glory. When the pressure comes... We must remember that our trials are not by accident. And they are serving a purpose. There is no greater remedy to maintaining courage and stability in trials than trusting in God's sovereignty and providence. To know no matter what, oh, this this is part of God's ingredients for my life. No matter what it is, God is in control. This is ultimately from his Hand and they will produce. They are serving a purpose, even if we can't see that purpose. And here's the thing oftentimes we can't. Oftentimes we can't see the purpose at all, not even a little bit. Sometimes God doesn't give us any insight into the purpose for our trials. We are told to trust Him. That was then. With the Israelites, and it is the case today with us. He is the same God. He was the the same God then, 3,500 years ago in ancient Egypt, as He is today, overseeing this worship service here in Noonan, Georgia, in the 21st century. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So that's the first complaint to the ruthless ruler. The second complaint goes with quite some strong, sharp barbs right into the hearts and ears of the bold brothers. So look with me at verses 19 to 21. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is the second complaint. 
Apparently, Moses and Aaron are waiting outside of the palace, whatever palace or, or a building the Pharaoh is in at this point. The, pharaohs go, uh, the foremen go in to speak with the Pharaoh. And it appears that Moses and Aaron are waiting outside. They know that the foremen have gone in to speak with Pharaoh to deliver their complaint regarding the harsh treatment. They care for the people and they want to know how Pharaoh responds. So there they are, waiting with love in their hearts for the people, with concern in their minds as to what Pharaoh had to say. And the people come out utterly despondent, these foremen. We don't know how many there were. Maybe it's a representative group of the foremen who go in. Maybe these are the, the foremen, uh, the, the, the sort of executive foremen or whatever. Who knows how it was structured. But this number of men, this number of foremen, they come out utterly despondent. They have been backed into a corner. They are facing an impossible scenario. They know that there is absolutely no way on earth that they can meet Pharaoh's expectations. And therefore, they know that the beatings will continue. And these are probably brutal beatings. Because Pharaoh is trying to get the same amount of production. I mean, you can imagine. This is going to be intense pressure. Intense force. This isn't, probably is not a couple smacks on the back. These foremen are facing an awful situation. And countless beatings. So you can imagine what goes through their minds when of all people, they run into Moses. They come out of the palace. Their their hearts are just filled with despair. And they run into Moses and Aaron. Before Moses arrived, before he and Aaron confronted Pharaoh... They were just normal slave foremen and probably treated a little better because they were foremen. You'll remember before Pharaoh goes and he delivers the message to the taskmasters and the foremen. Probably these foremen get a little bit of special treatment. Maybe their loyalty to Egypt in some way or another has been demonstrated or proved. They were just normal slave foremen. Yes, it was hard being slaves, but they knew what they had to do. They had what they needed to do it. And they did it. But ever since Moses and Aaron came, ever since Moses and Aaron showed up, they have been beaten and made to do the impossible. These brothers have just boldly walked up to Pharaoh and delivered their message. And now look at what has happened to us. Look at the suffering that we now have to endure. So their hopelessness turns to Anger. And I think maybe you could even here insert the word rage. This hopelessness and despair, it turns to this snarling towards Moses and Aaron. All their frustration towards Pharaoh and all their desperation over their situation is now dumped on Moses and Aaron in the form of a curse. They don't just say to Moses and Aaron, we're mad at you. They curse Moses and Aaron. Verse 21, the Lord look on you and judge. The Lord consume you with his wrath. The Lord smite you right now. Take you out. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, this is really interesting. They, they see the end result. Notice that. They see the end result being their death. They say that Moses and Aaron have put a sword. It's, it's really vivid imagery. It's as though Moses and Aaron have walked up to Pharaoh and said, oh, here, kill him with this. And put a sword in Pharaoh's hand to kill them. The end result of this in their minds, this is their level of hopelessness and despair and despondency. What's in their minds is we are going to die. There's no way out. Remember back to chapter 4, verse 30. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. 
and did the signs in the sight of the people. So they've heard the message. The people, these four men, they know what God is going to do. They, they know that God has promised he's going to do these things in Egypt. They know that Pharaoh is going to reject. Uh, of course Moses and Aaron would have said that because we're told here that Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. So all the words would undoubtedly include the fact that, by the way, Yahweh told Moses that when he comes to Pharaoh, God is going to harden his heart and he's not going to respond positively to the message. They've heard the message. They knew what God was going to do for them. They had received it in faith and worship towards God. But now, in the face of these tough trials... In the face of this unexpected delay, it is as though the content of their faith, listen to this, it is as though the content of their faith has evaporated. Hope has turned to despair. Instead of seeing deliverance on the horizon, all they can see is their impending death. That's what they expect to happen. Let me just say this to us as we think about the implication of this for our lives. Trials have a way of covering up the content of our faith. The content, what we find in God's word. Trials have a way of overshadowing the content of our faith, the content of our hope, pushing it to the margins, crowding it out of our minds. Trials have a way of covering up the truth that we have heard. I think an implication for us is that trials for us should be times of immersion, not desertion. We think of it in those ways. We, we have trials come, and when we meet those trials, oftentimes we begin to recede. We begin to desert God, his people, his word, we begin to recede. I've seen this happen many times in my life where people are going through something and it's just going through a hard time and all of a sudden you just don't see them anymore. They're, they're, they're kind of gone. You don't hear from them anymore. And maybe you catch them one day and you ask them, are, are you reading your Bible? No, I haven't really picked up my Bible. I haven't really been reading the scriptures lately, it's just been hard. It's been distracting. It's been really tough. And I just haven't had the motivation or haven't had the energy to do that. This is one of the great temptations that comes to us when we face trials is that we desert rather than immerse ourselves in the content of our faith. Because the very content of our faith is what gets us through the trials. When the content of our faith gets overshadowed by the trial, we will grumble and complain against the Lord. We will lose heart. We will begin to find despair in our hearts. And it will create division with God's people. Anger, resentment, bitterness, despair, hopelessness. All of those things will come when we do not immerse ourselves in moments of trials in the content of our faith. The person experiencing a trial should be totally consumed with Scripture. Have it everywhere, in your ears, in your face. Listen to it as you fall asleep at night. Sing the words of Scripture in your car. Remind yourself at every juncture of God's truth, of the content of our faith. Immersing ourselves in the cross and the crown of Christ is the only way we will find encouragement in trials. Christ came and he wore a crown of thorns in order that he might rise from the dead and wear 
the crown as King of kings and Lord of lords for eternity. This is the message of the gospel. Those who have died with Christ and been united with Christ also have a cross to bear and will have a crown to wear one day when we are glorified with our Savior. The content of the Scriptures floods our mind with these realities. Our crosses get smaller and our crown gets bigger when we're in God's Word. When we're not, the cross is huge and unbearable. And the crown can't be found. We just don't see it. It's not before our eyes. So these beat down foremen, they call down a curse on their leaders. They call down a curse on Moses and Aaron. The Lord look on you and judge. Their faith in God remains intact. But these unexpected trials cause them to doubt the current course of action. And it's obvious that they still have faith in God because they call on God to curse Moses and Aaron. So they do believe in Yahweh. The Lord is still judge. But Moses and Aaron need to be judged. They are thrown out. They received the message of deliverance, but these further trials don't match their expectations. So Moses and Aaron must be the problem. These guys, they're the reason that we're suffering. Their conclusion is that Moses and Aaron have caused them to stink in the sight of Pharaoh. They are an awful, foul smell now to Pharaoh. And have put a sword in their hand to kill them. You have armed and provoked the slave masters against us. Now we will die in a state of despair. Thanks, Moses and Aaron. May God curse you. That's their complaint. That's their response. And I think there's an implication for us here about leadership. Leadership among God's people. Satan loves to stir up God's people against their leaders. Satan is in the business of doing that. And you see that here through Pharaoh. Pharaoh wants this attack on Moses and Aaron. It's almost as though he is enticing them. He's instigating them. He's provoking them against Moses and Aaron. It's almost as though he's saying without saying it, well, if they hadn't done what they did and stirred you up to this foolishness, you'd still have straw. But you don't. And it's because of Moses and Aaron. He wants the people to turn on them. It will do away, and here's the point. If the people turn on their leaders, if the people turn on Moses and Aaron, it will do away with this whole unified effort to worship. Because that's really what's at stake, right? It's this unified effort of the whole people to worship their God. And so here we see Pharaoh, or Satan through Pharaoh, inciting divisions. Our divisions, from Satan's point of view, are attempts to prevent our unified worship. We know that from Paul in Romans 14 and 15. Remember, as he gets to the end in Romans 15 of that whole discourse, he talks about that one harmonious voice of praise going up to God. That's the problem. That's what's at stake is when you have these people in the churches in Rome, those house churches there, uh, being divided amongst themselves over these issues, there's not this one harmonious voice of worship to God. I wonder if those who divide Christ's church, those with a divisive spirit, those who create angst and tension and division and speak quickly rather than slowly or angrily, who harbor resentment and gossip. I wonder if the Christians who do that consider that what is at stake is not just the feelings or whatever of the person whom you are attacking or the relationships you are breaking up, but rather the glory of God and His praise. That the worship of God is what's at stake when disunity is brought among the people. Of God. The Christian leader must recognize this, sympathize with the people, be slow to bear offenses against him, trust that God will work 
and bring the people before the Lord in prayer. That's what a Christian leader of any sort in any area of the church must do when this happens among the people. And that's what we see here with Moses, at least in part. And so that turns us to the final complaint, is, and that is to the silent sovereign. Look at chapter 5, verses 22 to six one. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? By the way, let me just say this. Here Moses acts as a mediator. And he's a picture of Christ. He's a picture of Christ. And when we see this, we read this and we're like, whoa, I can't believe he said that. And, and that's true. We should have that response in part. But what we need to see here is Moses acting as a mediator. This will happen many more times in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Well, after Exodus, he wasn't there in Genesis. But this will happen many more times. We will see Moses functioning as a mediator, and it points us to the, to the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. It points us to the sin-bearing Savior, the one who steps before the wrath of God in our place. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So I'll read on. O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Moses here demonstrates, at least in part, the right response, in part. He takes these things to the Lord in prayer. He seeks God's face in the matter. He pours out his heart to God, his sovereign, the one who called him, the one who has been gracious to him. He goes straight to God. We don't get this little discourse where Moses and Aaron start to talk among themselves about the Lord. We don't get Moses even uh, telling the people, saying, well, I, I don't know why God's done this. Let me go ask him. We don't get anything like that. Moses immediately turns to the Lord in prayer. But what we get is this quintessential why. Why, God? Why are you letting this happen? Why is it working out this way? Why aren't your promises coming to fruition more quickly? Why is there such suffering? This level of suffering. Why does this have to happen? Why is this part of your plan? Why, why, why? That's what we get here. We know that that was in Jeremiah's mind as he ends his complaint in Jeremiah 20 with these words, verse 18. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Jeremiah says, why do I even exist? This is terrible. I wish I were dead. I wish I would have never breathed life. I wish I were killed before I was even born. By the way, notice how he speaks about himself in the womb. He was there. He was alive. He was a person. He wishes that someone would have struck him down. And so he asks, why, why, why? And this why response is probably also in Paul's mind as he begs God to remove his thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 8. He says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me. Now, there's been much debate over what this thorn in the flesh is, but listen to the language that Paul uses. I mean, the imagery of a thorn in the flesh. You know, think of a long thorn, like the kinds of thorns put on Jesus's crown of thorns. This is, uh, imagine that just going, going in, you know, going into the skin, passing through the skin, going into some muscle. It's painful. This is a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. This is kind of an ongoing thing. This is dragging Paul down. Harassment is an ongoing situation. 
And he goes on, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, in this case, Paul, at least in retrospect, but probably somewhat at the time, understood why God was doing it. And then he says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, I don't know what Paul prayed. We don't have the words of his prayer, but I can't help but to think that this little word, why, was present in Paul's prayers. We see it from Moses. We see it from Jeremiah, probably there with the apostle Paul. Moses' words here to the Lord in this big fat why are bold and even contain two accusations. This is what he says. First, why have you done evil to this people? Now, this is where translation is kind of tricky and it's important as we think through what this word evil means. Moses is not saying, why have you done wrongly to this people? Why have you sinned against this people, done evil in a moral, in moral evil sense? But why have you brought trouble on this people is really the idea. Why have you brought bad? Why have you brought calamity? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Now, this accusation is even heightened when it says, uh, when, he, when he later goes on to say that, that God is placed alongside of Pharaoh as the two who have brought trouble upon Israel. In these two verses, Moses ascribes this evil to God and to Pharaoh. God has brought trouble on the people, and Pharaoh has brought trouble on the people. God and Pharaoh lumped together. Wow. At the very least, Moses recognizes God's sovereignty over the situation. Notice that. Moses has a high view of God's sovereignty. He knows if it's happening that it comes from God ultimately. He knows if it's happening that God's sovereign hand is involved. That's why he goes straight to the source. Second, Moses complains You have not delivered your people at all, God. You said you were going to deliver, and you've done done none of that. You've done no salvation, no saving, no rescuing has occurred. God has been silent, inactive. Instead of deliverance, the suffering has just been piled up higher and too high to bear. Now it's like an avalanche coming down on the people. It has reached a breaking point. The foremen are expecting impending death. Hatred towards Moses and Aaron is on the rise. And Moses is doubting the entire enterprise. He says, why did you ever send me? God, this plan, it's not working. What is going on? What is happening? Why? 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 To this, the Lord God responds, how? graciously and patiently. How much in this one verse in context do we see about God? How much in this one verse, verse 1, seen after verses 22 and 23, do we learn about the graciousness and patience and long-suffering of Abba, of our heavenly Father. We can go to him in prayer. We must always go to him with reverence. Don't let Moses' prayer lead you to go to God with irreverence, but do let Moses' prayer lead you to God with boldness and honesty, trusting in who he is, in his sovereignty, and knowing that God can handle and deal with anything that we can bring to him. And here we just see the tender, loving hands of a father. He responds with no rebuke. He responds with no lashing out. He responds this way, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Here, I think the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, and the NIV do a better job of capturing the sense that the strong hand belongs to God. As you read this in the ESV, 
Uh, The sense that is conveyed is that the strong hand belongs to Pharaoh, but it doesn't seem that that is the case. The NASB renders this, under compulsion, he will let them go, and under compulsion, he will drive them out. The NIV says, because of my mighty hand, the word my is not there in the Hebrew, but uh, it says, because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out. So the sense is that, that God is going to do this with a mighty hand. By force, I will compel Pharaoh, and he will let the people go. So notice this. God doesn't tell Moses why the people are suffering the way they are. Why is it the case that Pharaoh heightened the sufferings on the people? Under God's sovereignty, why is it the case that he heightened the suffering of the people and made them endure these beatings? Why is it the case that the straw was taken away? Why why couldn't it have been that Pharaoh just said no and Moses and Aaron left and then they came back again later? Well, guess what? We don't know. We don't know. We're not given an answer to that question. Moses is not given an answer to that question. Job is not given an answer to that question. And many times we will not be given an answer to that question. But the Lord does provide reassurance. Now is the time. Now He will press in on Pharaoh. Now, under compulsion, Pharaoh will have to let the people go. God has confirmed the extent of Pharaoh's wickedness. He has set up the contest between himself and Egypt's gods. So if we are to venture a why or to answer the why question, I think that's where our heads would go. Pharaoh has been solidified. He's been cemented in his wickedness so much so that not only does he say no, but he he presses in on the people with the cruelty and hardness and hatred of a man who has defied God and hated his neighbor. And God has further set up the contest that will now unfold between Yahweh, the living God, the God of the Hebrews, And the so-called gods of Egypt. So now, let the contest begin. That's where the Lord leaves it. In verse 1, now let the contest begin. So that all might know that Yahweh is God over the earth. So what are we to do with this passage as we finish up this morning? See the patience and grace of your father. See the patience and grace of God and go to him in that. Lean into him in his character. Know that God has and will deliver his people, but know that trials will come. And don't be blown away when they do. Immerse yourself in God's word when they come and rejoice knowing that God is growing us. He's giving us endurance And it will be to the praise of his glorious grace for eternity. It will all be worth it. There's not a single person in eternity who will look back on this life and not give God praise for every single trial. Because every single trial is perfectly part of God's plan for his eternal glory and our eternal good. And know that no matter what we face, No matter how silent and absent God may seem to be, he never ceases to be the I am. He never ceases to be Yahweh. He is. He is always present with his people. So trust his wisdom. Cling to his promises and watch him work out his saving and often uncomfortable purposes through the Lord Jesus Christ and to the praise of God. Of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words by the Holy Spirit given to us through Moses. God, we thank you for what they teach us about the Christian life, what they say about your character. Lord, how they encourage us in the face of trials. I'm sure many in this room this morning going through hard things. Lord, all of us have faced trials to some degree and will face 
uh, many more. If we live long enough, Lord, we will face many more. God, we thank you that you're with us in our trials. We thank you that you test us and you grow us and you refine us. We thank you that we will look back on all of the trials of this life as unfathomable as it is and as painful as those trials may be. One day we will look back and we will thank you for each of them. It's hard for us to understand that, Father, now as we walk through this fiery furnace of the Christian life. But God, we pray that we would be built up by these words from Exodus, that we would draw strength, that we would take heart, and that we would, in solidarity with those ancient Israelites and with your people throughout the ages, that we would trust you and lean into your wisdom, that we would go to you in prayer with honesty and boldness and yet with reverence, trusting you, our gracious and patient Abba Father. In Jesus' name we pray. And Lord, we ask that you'd be with this time as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Lord, what a blessing to be reminded of our covenant identity in Christ and together as one body. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray that it would bring you glory this morning as we examine our hearts and confess our sins and as we grow in our love for you and one another. In Jesus' name, amen.